Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, and you're listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast featuring everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman. Follow him on Twitter at Coach Manaman. This is the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. I am Coach Manaman. Thank you for listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. For the latest news and notes and baseball content from the tri-state area, find us on social media, Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at Coach Manaman on Twitter. Welcome back to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. As always, this is everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman, and today we're welcoming in Probably in the history of the podcast, the guest with the lengthiest resume, the lengthiest bio, (laughs) and he goes by the name of Dan Evans. Now, if that name does not ring a bell, his biography will ring a bell. He considers himself a baseball expert, which I would agree with. He is the former Los Angeles Dodgers general manager COO of Field of Dreams, SMWW Mentor, This is Iowa Baseball, Athletics Inc., Sabre Board Member, Evans Baseball Consulting, and Pacific Rim Tech Pioneer. Dan, wow, what a mouthful. Welcome to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Nick, thank you, and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Did you get your start in professional baseball? And how did you progress and process through the organization to work all your way, all the way up to becoming the general manager and executive vice president for the Dodgers? That's a great question, Coach. I tell you, I I have been such a lucky guy. Um, 42 years in the game and, you know, a sport that I love that turned out to a career. I was a junior at DePaul University, and I got an internship with the White Sox as a second-quarter junior at DePaul and went in with no aspirations whatsoever of working in the game. I wanted to be a criminal prosecutor and had great, truly great people um, I was reporting to that were inclusive um, that we're sharing as far as how to do things. And I was a huge baseball fan. I was, I mean, I played all the time. And all of a sudden, on opening day of 1981, Carlton Fisk hit a home run into the left field stands to win the game. And I had been to that ballpark hundreds of times. I grew up about two miles from Wrigley Field. And I was so smitten with the game at that moment because suddenly it was more than just being a fan. Um, I was interning in both the baseball operations department and in the uh, baseball, I mean, in the PR department. And I had Roland Heeman, Dave Dombrowski, and um, Tony LaRusse as my three bosses. And looking back, that's how I got to where I was. I was around great people, Came back from my internship, coach, and um, I was totally all in. And my my boss, Roland Heeman, said, um, we'd love to keep you, but the strike's about to hit. We can't hire you. 
would you have any interest staying at no charge and we'll make sure you learn a ton oh you bet yeah absolutely ended up working 20 years for my hometown team uh did every single role you can imagine and i think that's part of my success story is that um having done every role literally every role allowed me to be better at my job um and i was never focused on being a general manager my first 10 years or so i was just focused on doing my job really well and in candidly that's why i teach a class um 40 years later i mentor people trying to get into the game been doing it for 10 years and we have almost 400 alumni in the game and that's my give back to the sport i saw recently on social media you were doing some of that stuff at the winter meetings and i know that loris college here in dubuque has a great program and i see a lot of them when i'm umpiring out at the field of dreams interning there so what a great thing we have going on in our community about the chicago baseball scene i don't know if you know this but i'm an oakland a's fan it was great growing up because they were so good and then we have times where we're good for four to six years, trade every single person off and then build and then we're good for another four to six years. But I've had some of my greatest experiences, whether it be at Wrigley Field or The Cell or Comiskey or whatever it's called today. I think <laughs> the Chicago White Sox area gets a real bad rap, but I really enjoy going there and watching the A's there every year, I feel like I can get a good ticket price at a fair rate and and enjoy enjoy the game of baseball. You were with the White Sox, and you were responsible for bringing in Hall of Famer Frank Thomas with the seventh pick overall in the 1989 draft. What was it about him and his game that sold you and the White Sox on drafting him? And then it's crazy to think that he earned a big league promotion roughly a year later, which is unheard of. Well, a lot of people went into uh, went into doing that. I think anytime you make a good move, Coach, there's a lot of people involved. I'm uh, I'm somebody who doesn't pretend to take credit for things because there's a lot of voices and a lot of hard work that going into it. Um, Mike Rizzo, who's now the general manager and president of the Nationals, was the area scout who recommended him. Um, a longtime friend, a Chicago native. Um, what we loved about him is his desire to be excellent. He wasn't afraid of being good. Baseball's a failure game, and it's a failure game like no other. Um, and as a result, you've got to be special You've got to have resiliency and good makeup to excel in the game because you're thwarted at the plate far more times than you're successful. And Frank had a, a passion and a focus on being great. Nick, seriously, he never threw in a bat away in the 12 years we were together, um, ever. You know, he thrived at late in the game when everybody else had given up. He made those at-bats key at-bats, so the next day he was coming off a great last at-bat. So his makeup, but also um, Ben McDonald, who you probably remember, was a real good right-handed pitcher. He was at LSU. He was going to be the first pick in the following year's draft. 
And he had a ball in Orleans at the Cape Cod League that cleared the center field um, backdrop. And that's gargantuan. It had never been done before. And from that moment forward, we as a group knew we had a pretty darn special guy here. It's character. It's makeup. That's what separates the great ones. And uh, that's what we loved about him. One of the greatest experiences I've ever had in baseball was at the cell and with the Chicago White Sox and Frank Thomas. So a former friend of mine by the name of Rob Quinlan, he used to play for the Anaheim Angels for nine years. And he got Mm -hmm. us tickets Sunday night baseball against the White Sox. And Jared Washburn had a no-hitter going into the ninth. And he was up one nothing, and Frank hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth to tie it. Game goes extras, game goes in, and I can't remember what inning, but Jared Washburn was still in there pitching. And Frank ended up hitting a walk-off home run to win the game. And then later that night, we uh, went out with the Angels and had a – I told uh, Jared Washburn – um, that don't worry about it. You'll get him next time. I think Frank is washed up and he goes, Nick, don't ever tell anybody somebody is washed up when they just hit two home runs <laughs> off you that night, which I'm glad he wasn't because he went on to uh, sign with the Oakland A's, have a great season. The year he was with the A's, I think he was third in the MVP voting. But you guys, you and Frank seem to have a unique relationship Talk to me a little bit about uh, that relationship you two have, and then what does he bring to the business of go the distance to make that field of dreams become a destination with the expansion that's going on? Well, we you called it. We do have a good relationship. And, you know, some of the old school guys that I started with said you can't have relationships with players. You just can't do it. And um, I just found that to be nonsense. I really did. I thought that was stupid. I was a very young guy in a position of decision making, and I thought I got to be me. I have to. I don't want to, you know, worry about how things were done in the '60s and the '70s. I'm, you know, I'm a newer, younger person. I'm going to cultivate relationships. I traveled with the club all the time, and as a result, I I just got to know Frank real well, and real well on a personal. Nature, and I think that um, that remained. He went to uh, I went. I left the White Sox, went to the Cubs, and eventually to the Dodgers. And um, we stayed in touch. One day, um, very candidly, in Los Angeles, Frank called me up and said, "I I want to be a Dodger. I want to come play for you." Um, we just didn't have the money to bring him in, and we had Eric Caros, who was already under contract with a no trade. We've stayed in touch. It was really fun when the Rockies hosted the All-Star game, what, a year and a half ago. Saw him before the game, waving at him. Um, We were talking back and forth, texting. Literally a few weeks later, the Field of Dreams um, movie site came up for sale. And, uh, you know, it just it's a great fit for us. We just we get each other. We uh, aren't afraid to disagree with the other. And what Frank is bringing to the Field of Dreams and to go the distance is a passion, a love for kids, 
for doing things right, for respect of the game, um, a fan experience that's, you know, unparalleled. He's all in, coach. I mean, we probably talk twice a day. We text all the time. Um, in fact, I feel guilty today. I've been in meetings since 6.30 this morning, and I haven't interacted with him. And I know he's got a bunch of stuff because he's texted me, but I've just been on virtuals literally the entire day or phone calls coming back from the winter meetings. But this guy gets it. He wants our venue to be the best uh, place. It's the, like the mecca of baseball and an overall great um, tourist and fan and tournament experience. And that's a pretty easy guy to hang out with. And that's a really fun guy to be a partner with. I love the reaction of the kids, but especially the parents and the grandparents when you're umping a game and you hear this commotion and you're like, what in the world is going on behind me? And then there's a break in the action and you look back and there's the big hurt. Everybody is going crazy and he's, yeah. he's so personable and he's so kind and he does a great job of making sure that that is a, is a special connection for everybody. And I can't tell you where people have traveled from. I mean, I don't know what the furthest distance is, but I've done teams in Kansas, Michigan, Florida, Colorado, California, and they all talk about how beautiful the area is. And it makes me feel real special when I get to share that experience with them. And they talk about how beautiful the area is. Dan, we have a lot of youth that listen to the podcast, and we've had some draft prospects, and we have some current draft prospects again. Before you were where you are today, you were a scout for many years. Talking to the youth, when you go scout players, what tools are you looking for? And also, what personality traits are you looking for that stand out the most when you go to scout a player? That's a great question. You know, um, growing up in the Midwest, just like the kids in the area that are listening, you don't have as many opportunities to shine. You can't play year-round. I lived in L.A. for, what, 15 years, and those kids can play 365 days a year. It's a distinct advantage. It's a big reason why um, 38% of the first 10 rounds are the West Coast in California. I have always, and, you know, a lot of my career has has been a dual path, being in the front office as a decision maker, but also out there scouting um, all over the world. It's no different um, anywhere in the country, anywhere in the globe. Makeup for me is the most important um, tool that people bring. I know a lot of people go, oh, you know, I love his bat, love his legs, love his fastball, love his breaking ball. No. For me, in a failure-based game, your makeup, your character, being a good teammate, having a, a work ethic and caring and having pride, to me, is the first thing I look for. Um, the kid who doesn't run a ball out, the kid that is a rotten teammate, the star of the team who doesn't talk to the lesser members, um, I always call it digging yourself. If you're one of those people, I hope you land on somebody else's team because I know I got a better chance of beating you quite honestly. Um, for pitchers, the physical tool I look for is the ability to throw a fastball strike. Um, if you can command your fastball on both sides of the plate, 
you've got a chance to get better. You've got a chance to have um, secondary that makes sense. But without command of your fastball, you just can't be that guy. You just can't do it. I don't care how hard you throw. If you can't command your fastball, you're a non-factor in the higher levels of baseball. For a position player, very honestly, and I know this is a little different, um, I look at the lower half because the lower half is everything in the player. It makes the player a better fielder, a better hitter, um, a better defender. So I look for um, lower half and you know a, a nimbleness of the lower half. Coachability is really important to me. But what I really look for, Coach, I look for instincts because you can't teach them. Either you have them or you don't. Either you're around the game enough to know how to play the game. And everybody talks about Jeter's play down the first baseline in the Coliseum. The only reason he was there is because he knows where to be. He was following the ball. You know, the great ones, the truly great ones are the instinctive ones. The ones who have tools that never get there, they have no instincts or bad makeup, and it's never it's never anything but. So, you know, for the kids that are listening, that are in our climate and, you know, struggling to play 20 games a year, you've got to know that every moment you're on that field, somebody is probably watching you. And if they are, and you don't stand out from a, hustle, instinct, tools, competitor, you might have blown your chance. And uh, my high school coach, one of the greatest coaches in high school history in Illinois, used to say, pretend like your most important game is right in front of you. Because there's always somebody watching you. And if you give them a negative impression, I can say from my standpoint, um, you give me a negative first impression, you're done in my book. You don't come, you don't get a second chance because there's too much opportunity. I've got lots of other people that I can go get. And, and, and to me, excellence on the field is predicated by excellence off the field. It's character, it's makeup, it's showing up and giving a darn. Um, a lot of kids don't do that. And that's why they won, you know, they wonder for the rest of their life, how come I didn't get that opportunity? Well, you cost yourself that opportunity. Great advice and a couple follow-ups that uh, play that Jeter made against the A's in the playoffs. I watched that play once live when it happened. I have never watched that play again. There's a Derek Jeter <laughs> documentary that is out right now and everybody tells me I have to watch it. Is It is as good as the last dance. And I can't bring myself to watch it because I know I'm going to see that play multiple times. And you said instinct, and I feel like that's really lacking with our youth today. I always say baseball IQ, but just so people understand the the information that Dan is giving. I, I love following Dan on Twitter, Dan Evans. He's He's a great follow. And the bat flip heard around the world that made the bat flip cool. Dan tweeted the uh, Joey Bats, the Jose Batista bat flip when he hit the walk-off home run in the playoffs. And he shared a story that there was a lot of scouting and there was a lot of things that, that went into that to make that moment leading up to that. And it, this isn't just some guy off the streets that 
is telling you scripted that he's read online. He's been there. He's done that. He's seen these players. He's seen these great character people succeed. And he's seen people not with uh, such great character struggle and, and not make it. Dan, I have to ask you this. You're responsible for drafting and acquiring a lot of high-profile players. If you had to pick a story or two or three along the way, interesting ones that really stand out, that are a good laugh or too good to be true, what what are your go-to stories that, that would give us a, an interesting take on, on your job, either drafting players or acquiring players through trades? Wow. Um, I, I, I'm lucky. I've been a part of some really good ones. Um, the first one would be Tom Seaver. Um, I was a 24-year-old uh, staff member of the White Sox. Roland Heeman recently passed away, um, took a liking to me, and I'm grateful for that to this day. Um, it was a snowy January night, and we had what was called a compensation draft back then where if you lost a player to free agency, um, you could draft off of uh, anybody's roster after they protected um, 15 players. So Roland came to me about 4 o'clock that evening and said, are you going home? And I said, no. And for everybody, don't go home before your boss goes home. Always stay. It was always my theory. Everybody else had left. It was Roland and I ordered a pizza. We sat in a boardroom. We went through every roster. And, I mean, Nick, I am an absolute baseball fanatic. Uh, I probably love hockey and basketball at least as much, if not more, which is a little weird for some people. But, you know, I've worked in baseball. I, I, I can't love the games as much because it's work. Um, and I said to him, I said, you know, I was going to go to a basketball game tonight, but if you, you know, you need me to stay. And he goes, let's go through this. So at one moment I stop and I said, Roland, Tom Seaver's off the roster. He's not on the roster. So that made him unprotected. And he goes, wow, he had a good year last year. So I opened up our scouting reports. I'm reading them to him. And he said, so it sounds like he's still got, some talent. So we did some more homework and we came to the conclusion that the Mets figured the White Sox coming off a 99 win season, um, playing in the LCS, there's no way they're going to take a pitcher in his light thirties. They've got a great pitching staff and Roland goes, let's make that great pitching staff even a little better. And they can learn from Seaver. So we comb the roster one more time. Nick, it's 1.30 in the morning on a weekday, I think a Friday night, actually. And we didn't even know what it was like outside. And we went outside, we were getting about 10 inches of snow. So we went out. Uh, Roland was a notoriously bad driver. So I told him, listen, why don't I drive you home? Um, so wiped all the snow off the back window, went to the front, and the front window was shattered. Somebody had broken in, broke off the, um, broke the front windshield and fro broke the driver's side. 
and just ransacked my car. Now I'm 24, fresh out of college. There wasn't much to steal, but that was Comiskey Park at that time. So we got in the car. I'll never forget. We cleaned all the broken glass off the seats and I sat down and Roland says, I know you're pissed off. I know you're disappointed about your car. We'll get it fixed, but you will never forget what happened the night that we got Tom Seaver. <laughs> and, uh, and he's right. Here I am 30 plus years later. Um, you know, the other thing that many of the really good moves I made was taking a chance on a player who hadn't quite got there, who hadn't quite um, achieved the excellence that you'd expect. Um, and that's where I rely on the scouts, the area scouts, the pro scouts, um, people I've worked with. I'm a big networker. Um, so, you know, there's many examples out there. There's Paul Canerco, there's Dave Roberts, there's Russell Martin, there's uh, Vladimir Guerrero. There's a lot of really great guys, Bo Bichette. But so many of them come because I'm a very collaborative person and I'm, I'm somebody who likes to work within the group and, you know, really challenge people to have the guts to talk about a player. Um, Canerico was on the back of a golf course and, you know, we traded Mike Cameron for Canerico. I, I got on the first hole and Cameron was our center fielder and I got on the 10th hole and I had Paul Canerico on our club and I knew Canerico from high school, knew the makeup, knew he'd be great, but Nick, so much of trading, signing, um, acquiring players is about getting people from their past and finding out about their work ethic, their makeup, why they haven't succeeded to that point. Um, and, you know, I'm one that if a guy has a great work ethic, good instincts, I'll take a chance on a guy like that. Uh, I remember Ozzie Guillen. We traded for Ozzie Guillen. And, uh, my God, that's so long ago. And Ozzie was a 20-year-old. And we made a great trade for him. But we traded a Cy Young Award winner to get this elite shortstop who ended up being one of the best shortstops in the game and ultimately a great manager. And um, Ozzie showed up. He was a switch hitter his entire career. And his first at bat in spring training, Frank Tanana's on the mound, and Ozzie goes up to the plate batting left-handed. My heart sunk. I'm like, what's going on here? Um, we acquired a switch hitter. We didn't acquire a left-on-left guy. And uh, Larusa whistled at me. I came down to the dugout. He said, what the heck's going on here? I said, I don't know. And he goes, well, somebody's got to tell me why our big acquisition is batting left-handed against a southpaw. So I went in to talk to Ozzy. And uh, Ozzy said, I don't know. I just decided I'm going to stop hitting um, switch hit. I'm going to hit lefty all the time. And everybody affiliated with the trade, we were all like, oh, no, this is not going to work. And he turned out to be a pretty good hitter, not a great hitter, but a pretty good hitter. And it's just one of those moments in your career that you just go, oh, my God, this is a completely different landscape. It's funny. When I do these interviews and when I write these questions, I kind of have an idea where I think they're going to go. 
I didn't picture you being as old. I didn't had no idea this question was going to lead to Tom Seaver. What a great story. Shows the difference in our age. I I'm, I'm, I'm every bit of 62 years old, Nick. Every bit of it. And the age difference as well. So I just turned 41. I have no recollection of Ozzy Gian ever being a switch hitter. I only ever knew him as a lefty. And I watched the White Sox a lot because with WGN and, and all of that. Now, Dan, I, I pulled some um, some information online. And I, I want to read this to you and then, and then pick your brain on something here. When you were with the Dodgers, online okay. reports state that you turned around the Dodgers minor league system and led them to a Western Division Championship in the Dodgers' first playoff experience in eight years. And you have the second highest winning percentage in the history of all Dodgers GMs. Now, this is something that kind of struck me as a baseball guy. I was, I was kind of shocked by this. To me, it seems like your GM experience was short-lived. You were only the Dodgers GM for three years. Why only a few years? It seems to me that you were putting successful teams on the field. How come with all the success you had, you only were in that position for three years? Well, the Dodgers were sold to one of the worst ownership groups in the history of baseball. Um, they were talking to me, the previous ownership was talking to me about an extension. And this new group, Frank uh, McCourt and his wife came in and you could just see it was going to be an absolute disaster. Um, they were actually thrown out of the game. The franchise was taken away from them about five, six years later. And, Nick, to be very candid, that experience um, caused me to really be, um, I would say, picky about future job offers. I, I killed it in Los Angeles, and our staff was elite. Um, we had eight future managers on our club, um, David Ross, Dave Roberts, Alex Cora, Robin Ventura, we had Hall of Famers, uh, Freddie McGriff, um, Adrian Beltre. We had some absolute super players, and it was an amazingly great experience. I mean, I, I, I led one of the greatest franchises in all of professional sports and then had an absolute disaster as an owner. I knew it wouldn't work. He wanted me to do some things that were totally against what I was all about and why I was brought there. I knew I was pretty darn good at what I was doing. I think I was the runner-up executive of the year that year. And I just said, no, I'm not going to conform to their lunacy. I'm not going to do what uh, they want me to do just to keep my job. So I fell on my sword very, very comfortably. And from that point forward, boy, I've had probably 15 different teams approach me to lead their franchise. But it was either the owner wasn't somebody I wanted to work for or the city wasn't a place I wanted to wake up. And, you know, I'd already been to the top of the mountain and done something at 40 years of age that I never thought I'd get the opportunity. And I decided I wouldn't compromise myself again. Um, the only other job that I really had tremendous interest in was the Cubs job years later. And I was a finalist with Theo Epstein. Um, but I just didn't. 
I, I, the experience was so bad with that ownership group for a very brief period that I decided I'm better than that. And I don't have to chase these things because I already worked for one of the greatest teams in the world. Um, it would never be the same or as good an experience. So candidly, I just decided I'm going to have fun, do some great things in the game. I was a young guy. I was in my mid forties when I was, when I was fired. But coach, I'll tell you what, I, I think I'm a better baseball person today than I was when the GM of the Dodgers because now I've really added to my resume. My skill sets improved. My experiences are better. Um, I have elite awareness in some things that I just didn't get very much involved with um, the Dodgers and prior. So I'm really proud of, of me deciding not to compromise um, and having the success that I've had um, during during my GM tenure and then afterwards. Automotive Care Solutions is a proud sponsor of the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. ACS is owned and operated by Nate Dirt Hall and is located in beautiful downtown Dyersville. ACS offers services such as exterior and interior detailing, buffing, waxing, ceramic coating, rust proofing, and undercoating. They welcome all cars, trucks, tractors, semis, campers, boats, and so much more. To make your appointment convenient, they also offer a courtesy vehicle. Pickup and drop-offs are available within a 15-mile radius of Dyersville. To request a quote or schedule an appointment, call 563-581-8244 or email acsdyersville at gmail.com. Great story, and uh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I asked that question. I wasn't sure if if there were typos, and it was supposed to be a 13, or or if there was just a new regime no. that, that came in, or or if you were going on to be the president of the organization. So, I, I do have to ask you about this, and we've we've joked about this when I when I've seen you in person. So once I got your card. While I was umping out at the Field of Dreams, I, I did some Google searches and, and did some YouTube searches, and I, I found this to be hilarious. I am not a Red Sox fan, but I'm a huge Big Poppy fan, and when he did his farewell tour, my wife and I went to see him in Boston because it was a bucket list thing of mine to watch a game from on top of the Green Monster. Greatest baseball experience ever. Saw him hit a home run that night. Saw Henley Ramirez also hit three home runs. Two of them that sailed right over top of my seat to hit the billboards. When you were with the Dodgers, I saw this on a previous podcast, you had an opportunity to bring in David Ortiz, Big Poppy. Tell the audience why that didn't come to fruition. Oh, good question. And <laughs> it's fun when your past comes back. And, and I wouldn't say to haunt me on this one. The Dodgers were a disaster. Uh, they hadn't made the, the playoffs in an extended period, mismanaged horribly. Their player development scouting system was an honestly, it was in disarray. And, um, you know, that's probably my expertise when it comes down to it. 
And when I came there, the ownership group said, you do what you need to do to fix us. You have carte blanche. You can bring in um, staff members, redo things. So, you know, frankly, I brought in people like Kim Ng. I brought in people like John Bowles and Bill DeVacy and just some phenomenal people. But their, their scouting, um, particularly at the professional and amateur side, was, was just awful. It was just really bad. Um, they'd miss hit on so many first round picks. And then, you know, from the second round forward, had very few guys that became guys. Um, they just, you know, good scouts can find guys in the 10th, 15th round, 20th round. We didn't have any of those. So I went and I saw a AAA club. I came back with one guy that I thought would ever play in the big leagues. Then I went and saw a double A club. And it wasn't good. So I'm realizing, okay, if I'm a GM of another club, there's there's nobody here that I'd trade for, which was an eye-opener for me. I had I had scouted like crazy for the White Sox, and I I had I wore so many hats. And one thing I would do every year is I'd go to winter ball. Well, that previous winter, I saw David Arias play and in the Dominican, and loved him. Loved his bat. Left-handed bat, all sorts of power. Well, David Arias changed his name to David Ortiz. And the general manager of the Twins, a great friend, a peer of mine who I loved, called me and said, Danny, we've got, we're backlogged at first base. Um, I want to get this guy out of the league. I don't want him to be a DH in our league. Would you have interest? Nick, I couldn't have been on the job more than a month. And I said, well, Terry, I love him. I just saw him play last winter. I love him, love him, love him. Um, give me about an hour and I'll call you back. And he goes, well, I'll, I'll give him to you for next to nothing. So I went in. I talked to two of our staff, read the reports. And the reports were awful. They had him as a non-prospect. The whole time, Nick, I'm reading it. I'm going, man, this place is a bigger mess than I thought. But it's okay. That's why I was brought in, because it was a mess. And then, and I can say this now, because Jerry Reinsdorf and I are on great terms, um, I looked at my reports, which somehow followed me in some cases to L.A., and I read the report, and I gushed about him, and I loved him. So I talked to a couple of scouts that saw him, and they just didn't like him. So I went back to my office. I closed the door. I turned on some Springsteen. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, we have a first baseman as a 10 and 5. He signed for three more years. We don't have the DH. He can't play the outfield. Where am I going to put this guy? And we were trying to cut our payroll. Our payroll was easily the highest in the game. And we had no prospects coming, so he's a perfect fit. And I sat in my office and listened to some music, and I'm going, you know, if I make this trade for this guy when nobody likes him, what an awful way for me to tell everybody, I don't give a damn about you guys. I'm not going to be inclusive. I'm not going to be collaborative. This is my sandbox. You can't play in it. And I called the GM back, Terry Ryan, and I said, Terry, I need 
tonight to think this through a little bit. He goes, Danny, you got it. Don't worry about it. I went home that night and I called one of my peers, um, one of the great general managers of all time, not going to mention his name. And I called him and I said, you ever have something like this happen? And he goes, yeah. He said, if you make the trade, um, they'll know that it's your little beach and you're not listening to anybody. He said, what I would, what I would tell you is it depends on how collaborative you want to be moving forward because you'll isolate a lot of people from that point forward. Um, so I slept on it, took my dog for a walk the next morning and up at Mount Wilson at the top of Pasadena's, uh, foothills, I said, I can't do this. And I know, I know I'm going to regret it, but it's going to be my statement. So I did a conference call the next morning. I brought everybody on, all the scouts, and I said, listen, we suck at scouting right now. We're terrible. And I'm going to tell you why I know we are. And I gave some instances of guys who had been picked that were absolutely awful that they had decided could play. And I said, but now I'm one of you. And now I'm responsible for being a part of these decisions. We can't be this bad anymore. For you guys to miss on this guy, and I said at the time, this guy's going to be a dude. He's going to be a guy, but we have basically paralyzed our ability as a team to even make a move like this because we've got players in spots with no trade contracts. We don't have maneuverability. That's on you guys, but now that's my problem. So I have a chance to get this guy, and I'm going to say no because all of you said no. And I said, I'm telling you, if I were arrogant, if I weren't a team player, he's on our team tomorrow, and we figure it out. But I just said, no, we can't do that. But you're all on call from this point forward. That day, I decided to change our, I would say, pyramid, where we suddenly, I, they didn't have this back then. I brought in a director of professional scouting, a director of international scouting, and a director of amateur scouting. And I put the pressure on those directors to be responsible for only their department, hired people only their department. Two years later, we were the organization of the year for Baseball America. So in a weird way, Big Poppy um, was was pretty much the impetus for me to make wholesale philosophical and personnel changes. I was just so happy he was in the American League, Nick, because I never had to worry about him beating us for a division. But um, I look back, if I did, if I'd have had the chance in a second GM position, I would have gone the other way. But as a rookie GM, I thought it was a it was a terrible way to drive a stake right in the middle of the relationship between the staff and me. And I look back and I'm glad I did it because it, it radically changed the Dodgers. And their model today is the model that I created 20 years ago. Great story. Dan told a Cliff Notes version of that story to uh, the new varsity coach of senior coach Tyler Soigling when we were umping a game out at the Field of Dreams together. And I, I just love love hearing that story. Dan, the one thing that, that I want to tell you 
I, I just love the fact that you have embraced the community of Dubuque County and, and Dyersville, Iowa. I often see you out in the community. I see you tweeting. I see you checking out local high school baseball games. As someone who grew up in a big city and lived in big cities all across the United States, what is it about Dyersville, Iowa and Dubuque County that makes it so special to somebody that came to the community as an outsider? Oh, man. It's, um, you know, grew up in Chicago, moved to L.A., then to Boulder, and now in Denver. So, you know, a town of 4,300 and a county of less than 100,000. I mean, I had 10,000 people in my high school, Nick. And that's twice the size of Dyersville. It's the people. It's the culture. Um, I'm a Midwestern guy. I embraced it from day one. has nothing to do with the Field of Dreams. Um, the people have been so good to me. But I've made sure I've gained relationships. I embrace the town. I live in Dyersville. I mean, I don't live in Dubuque or Piasta or Manchester. I live 2.6 miles from the Field of Dreams, downtown Dyersville. I go to dinner in Dyersville. Um, I love Dubuque. I love its history. Um, I have a push pin in places I've been in Iowa and uh, my girlfriend, Kathy, is an Iowa native. She's an Ames native. So everywhere we go in Iowa, we do a push pin. I've embraced the, the state, the community, because it's real. It's genuine. Um, it, there's, there's just no BS. And what I love is how real relationships are. They're not... They're not about what you drive, where you live, where you work. It's who are you as a person? So, you know, knowing that I've cultivated some really wonderful friendships that have absolutely nothing to do with the field of dreams. I mean, I know where Brazen is, but I also know where some of the important places in the community are like the St. Mark's program, it does great things for kids in the community. Um, you know, the, 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 the Dubuque Botanic Gardens, unbelievable. Love it. Horseshoe, you know, I love it. I go there. Um, Breitbart, I go up there and hang out and have a good dinner, drive up to the border. All of these things, and, and you know, Nick, I've been accused by my peers of not being a 100% into baseball and not just throwing the rest of my life away. Well, I've never been that guy. To me, that makes me a better person. And the community's been good to me. They've been open arms, allowing me to be a part of things. But at the same time, I don't want to be an ATM machine. I don't want to be constantly taking and not giving. So, you know, for people, I'm going to be at West Dubuque, you know, football games, watching Jared coach. I'm going to go to volleyball games. I'm going to go to Beckman games. Very active in the community. Now with Xavier or Xavier's uh, fundraiser. Um, I go to potluck dinners. I go to things that are in the area that are community events because I'm splitting my time between Dyersville and Denver. And I love Dyersville. 
and I love Dubuque County. So for me, I thought that residents in the community needed to know that I was all in and that I wasn't always going to be taking, I'm going to be giving. And I want to be there for the moments in the community that matter, not just anything to do with us. I felt some of my predecessors in this role neglected the community at times, didn't make it a focus. I went 180 and I said, I I want to know everybody who owns a business in Dyersville. I want to know them. So I go in there, I say hello to them. It's not a hollow thing. And I'm just about there, Nick. I I go in places, I know people now. And I know that if I want a great dining experience, I know where to go. If I need to buy a bike, I go to Bicycle World. And things like that make my life a little better, but also make me a participant and a contributor in the community. Um, it's where I want to retire. It's where we love. I mean, Kath and I love it there. So, you know, for us, it's real. And anybody who knows me knows it's real. I, I just, you know, I, I there's places in downtown Dyersville that actually know my order. You know, I'm in the soup club at the Ritz. And, and that's who I wanted to be. And Coach, you know, to be honest with you, I made a great time in my life where I know what I like and I know what matters to me. And one of the things that matters to me is, is being a contributor in the community. And I've got an incredible vehicle at the Field of Dreams. But for me, for Kathy and I personally, it makes a difference to be a participant and not just on the outside looking in. And that's why I think your organization and you um, have the support of the community because you're not flying in for photo ops. And then as soon as the cameras are gone, the media is gone leaving. You are actually giving back to the community. Let's talk. What are some short term? Well, Nick, Nick, to be honest with you, Nick, I'm probably a textile eating their popcorn and having some flatbread. That's what I'm probably doing. Yeah, me too, but I get rid of the flatbread and get the pretzel. <laughs> they're they're pretzels. I got a lot. Those are good too. <laughs> they are, they are phenomenal, and the flat the flatbreads are great as well. What are the short term and the long term plans for the Field of Dreams site? Well, overall, the most important thing is preserving and protecting the Field of Dreams movie site. Not tinkering with it. Not compromising it in any way. Um, you know, over 300,000 people come there every year. It's the very epicenter of, of Dubuque County. Um, anything we do, and you know this as a community, people know where Dyersville is because of the Field of Dreams. But the Field of Dreams site itself, um, the field, the house, um, we're never going to mess with that. We're not going to mess with the visual, with the feel, anything about it. Um, it's a special place. I love it. It's therapeutic. People come from all over the world to be there. Frank and Rick and I will never mess with that. We were, we talked to eight different architectural firms when we had this idea about adding a sports and entertainment component. We bought a hundred acres in addition. So now we have 300 acres and one of the architects, RDG, who is Iowa based and phenomenal said there is a corn ridge in the northern part of the property 
that's nearly 30 feet. And with the corn at full height, it's 40 plus feet. We suggest you utilize that and do your build on the other side of that. It'll protect from the Field of Dreams movie site. It'll separate the two. No one can really accuse you of ruining the view. No one can accuse you of tampering with what's the expectations. Frank and I looked at each other from across the table and we're like, okay, this is the group. There's no doubt they get it. So Nick, everything we're doing short and long term is preserving the movie site and then making the northern, the western and the southern part of the property a mecca for softball, baseball and entertainment, not just in the city, the county, the state, but in North America. Our goal is to have the best complex for youth softball and baseball that can entertain the heck out of kids, give them an opportunity to be better, have an elite experience, but also understand, learn, educate them about ag and about Iowa and about who we are as Iowans and make it just a spectacular venue at an amphitheater where acts can come and play an inclusive park where kids with disabilities and families with challenges can have a great time at the field, an RV park. So maybe one day, you know, you're making your drive through Highway 20, you park at the field. Ragbri, we want to be a part of that. Building a hotel. And then, Nick, I don't know if I've told you this, we're going to build a 108,000-square-foot indoor facility. And we're going to tech it out. We're going to make it a glorious place 12 months out of the year. The big thing we're going to do is, yeah, we're going to have tournament people from age 10 to 18, Summerwood Bat League collegiate team, college tournaments, but the kids in Dubuque County are going to get a chance to play at the field. They'll get to practice at the field. I envision games between Beckman, West Dubuque, and some of the powerhouses in the area and let those kids have the experience of playing in our local jewel. I mean, and it's going to be phenomenal. So short term by probably midsummer next year, amazing additions to the property. We broke ground around Labor Day. You can see the nine fields now. It's evident what's going on when you're beyond the ridge. But then when you look back to the South and you see the movie site, unchanged the views unchanged uncompromised everything we're doing is with the spirit of preserving the field of dreams movie site that to me is the biggest challenge i have but i'm sincere about it and i'm not veering from it so from our sponsors to our overall look everything about it will be consistent it'll be farm and ag themed corn lined um, everywhere you can look, the Rays, the Rays have even more chances to show off their wares. But I want kids to leave from wherever in the world they came from and leave with a great taste of Iowa and a great feel for baseball and or softball and for their parents and their loved ones to walk away saying that was an amazing experience. I can't wait to come back here. And I can tell you that's, 
the biggest complaint I've heard from people is, oh, they're destroying the site. Why would they do this? And I ended my umpiring season by doing a 57 plus tournament. And I was curious to see what it looked like. And when I drove into the movie site, the construction is so far away. When I was behind the plate calling balls and strikes, I couldn't see a crane. I couldn't see a tractor. I couldn't see anything. All I saw was what I saw in the movie. Yeah. And Nick, you know, I don't mean to insult anybody, but it's very important for me to, to just make this point emphatically. The people who claim that we're ruining the site are ignorant of the facts because there is no way we're compromising the site. I've been involved with it from the first day we talked about it. That is the mantra. That is the absolute mission with our builders, with our architects. We will not compromise the Field of Dreams movie site. Everybody's on the same page. We are all Iowa-based companies. And they all have a, a stake in this. It's their Field of Dreams project, not ours, not mine. Um, so I just say to people who complain about it, um, they don't know the facts. They haven't taken the time to learn. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty pointed when I hear that. Because when you say that, you're taking a shot at what we've promised and what we've envisioned. And we're not going to veer from that. We don't have to. And we won't. Frank and Rick and I will never veer from that. Dan, last question. Yeah, and Nick, I heard the same thing when we when we brought in baseballism. Oh, yeah. And people said, oh, how can you bring in baseballism? You know, our little mom and pop shop, that baseballism shop is amazing. It looks and acts like the Field of Dreams should look. It's a glorious facility. And I don't hear those complaints anymore. You know, some people complain about the sunrise. They complain about the sunset. They complain about a great dinner. I don't surround myself with people like that. And I don't worry about them. I know where we're headed and where we're headed. They're not going to look very good in a couple of years when they know what we've done because it's going to be consistent with what we've promised. I'd like to thank Dan Evans, former general manager of the Dodgers and current COO of the Field of Dreams movie site for being on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Dan, before we hit into that podcast killing double play, Dubuque is such a baseball-rich community. And we used to have minor league baseball with the Dubuque Packers, and a famous alum to come from there was Bruce Bochy, who was just named the new manager of the Texas Rangers. About 20 or so years ago, we had a failed attempt to bring a minor league team to Dubuque. Now, we have the permanent field out there that has the dimensions for professional baseball. Any chance that we ever get a professional team, whether it be a minor league team or an independent league team in that stadium? Well, I think at the movie site, the answer would be no. The dimensions of the field, um, of the original field, aren't big enough to host um, competitive games regularly. Plus, there's some issues with safety with the farmhouse. Um, we just don't have enough land to put something on there. But the big league field that was built for the MLB games of the last two years 
is going to remain intact. In, in and I'm the president of the stadium board, the This Is Iowa ballpark board, with nine other local officials where we're going to build a permanent stadium on the site. Um, we're going to build a 3,000-seat um, permanent venue that's going to be all tricked out and very Iowa-centric, very ag-related. We're gonna, it's going to be a glorious facility. We look to do around 70 events a year at the property. Um, that's where I think we could do something, whether it's a Summerwood Bat Collegiate League like the Northwoods League, um, some people have been clamoring for a minor league team. Um, I happen to like the, co- uh, the college wood bat league model for everything that it stands for. It's kids chasing their dreams. Um, maybe there's something softball related that we can do on our complex. Maybe it's collegiate tournaments, conference tournaments. Um, Nick, I think the love of baseball is so real in Dubuque County. Um, there's some amazing um, history in the community, some of the great ballparks that were in the county that now I've read up on and I'm trying to incorporate some of their look into some of our build just to point to the past. Um, so I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but our goal is to have um, an organized um, baseball team and softball team on the property that the community can rally behind and a venue where they can come and enjoy competitive baseball. That way, Nick, here's how I look at it. We'll have 10 to 12 year olds playing on five of the diamonds, softball and baseball. We'll have the high school kid aged 13 to 18 playing on the bigger diamonds that we're building. Um, We'll have instruction on the property. They're all chasing their dreams, enjoying the venue for me, adding a wood bat collegiate team would just follow the same vibe where people are trying to get better, being true and genuine to the property and doing what just makes sense on the property. So, you know, we're not ready to announce anything or finalize anything, but I just peeled away the curtain and tipped everybody off. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. And uh, frankly, I think it would be a great community gathering spot and making it just one more great thing to do in our community. Hearing Dan talk and reflecting on the movie, I, I think of the quote and I think of what they're envisioning. People will come, Ray. People will come. 643, we're out of here. Post game show is brought to you by. Thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to stop by Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, and also subscribe on Spotify.